Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Arnieka Nubia, who is a pioneering and internationally recognized historian, writer, and presenter, who is reinventing our perceptions of the Renaissance, British history, Black studies, and intersectionalism. Professor Nubia is the leading historian on the leading historian on the status and origins of Africans in pre-colonial England from antiquity to 1603. He has developed entirely new strands of British history, which includes Africans in ancient and medieval England. He is also an expert on the diversity in Tudor, Stuart, Georgian, and Edwardian England slash Britain. He has also helped academia and the general public to an entirely new perspective on otherness, colonialism, imperialism, and the Black British contribution to World Wars I and II. He is also an internationally renowned speaker and has been a keynote presenter at venues such as the House of Parliament, the National Portrait Gallery, and the National Portrait Gallery of Scotland. He has been a presenter at universities in both the UK and the United States of America. He has also been a consultant and presenter for the television series, including the BBC's History Cold Case, Episode 1, Series 1, The Ipswich Man, and Channel 4 Skeletons of the Mary Rose, and Crosswell Discovery, London's Lost Graveyard. Today, Professor Nubier is going to be discussing with me his wonderful book, England's Other Countrymen. Professor Nubier, thank you for joining me today. Hello, good afternoon. Oh, good morning. (laughs) So, can you tell us? Well, actually, it's actually afternoon here. So, we're in the afternoon now. So, we'll take that. Can you tell us? Evening here. So, (laughs) oh, you're going into the evening? Ah, you're getting into my Oh, wow. Let us get this going. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Okay, so when we're talking about the book, I think we're talking about the second book in a series. Um, This book called um, uh, Black Tudor Society, or a second book from the first, uh, which is called Black and Ward, Africa's been tutoring in their present status and origin. Really, both books work together. The first book, um, published 2013 and republished again in 2040, yes, almost 10 years ago, uh, chronicles the presence, status, and origin of Africans in Tudor England with a reflection on Africans being present in other parts of Western Europe during the period that's often called the early modern period. This is a period of time between 1485 or the beginning of the 15th century and, um, in this case, 
the 1600-1660. England's other countrymen, Black Judas Society, continues that same theme, examining the African peasant status and origins in England between 1485 and the 1660s. Primarily, both books use primary sources written at the time by white English people. So in this sense, the book differs from many books that we now see on ethnicity, which are often ideas, theories, and practices based on the 21st century looking back. Instead, these are not, these are source books that people can use for evidence-based research. And then the theoretical and narratives that come from it are fundamentally supported by evidence um, uh, from the period in time in question written by white English people. So um, these books have been used um, as source material to reshape our understanding of diversity in English history. Hitherto, it had been postulated that the further back you go in time, the weaker the social, political, economic, and cultural position of Africans in the diaspora must be, or that Africans were not present outside of Africa before the enslavement process, which is often called the transatlantic slave trade. What these books do is prove that there was an African presence that existed in Europe and in other parts of the world hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years prior to the enslavement process known as the transatlantic slave trade. And moreover, that this African presence were not all um, treated as, nor categorized as, nor having the status of being enslaved, and that many of these African people had position status in Western Europe and in other parts of the world, and they had interactions with the local populations and community, and even helped to shape the way in which um, many European nations developed in this period of time. Interesting question. How did you become interested in the topic? So, um, I became interested in this topic in 1985. In 19, my mistake, in 1983. We get this correct. In 1983, I became interested in this topic because I was at that time being taught um, William Shakespeare's Othello uh, and um, the, another play called Titus Andronicus, and a third play called, what's it called now? Not what you do about nothing. Um, I can't remember what third play is like. Oh, Merchant of Venice. So in these three plays, The Merchant of Venice, Titus Andronicus, and Othello, and in another play called The Tempest, there are characters who have an African heritage. In Othello, there is, of course, Othello. And Othello is a nobleman. He is someone who raises himself up to the position of being one of the ten, Council of Ten. Council of Ten are the people that make decisions um, regarding the safety and the protection of Venice. And I thought, well, how interesting it is that this character um, of Othello exists in a 16th century story. You know, why is Othello an African? Uh, why is his blackness very visible and uh, very obvious? Uh, why is he described in a derogatory way uh, by Iago and one or two of the other characters? Uh, and why does he have this position uh, within British society? Is this art imitating life? And does this story reflect not just upon the fiction of Venetian society, but does reflect upon English society. Then there's this other character called Alan in a play by William Shakespeare called Titus Andronicus, which is actually set in third century Rome, but is a Renaissance play nevertheless. And Alan, again, had 
a degree of agency, even though he is the principal villain in the story. He has considerable agency. In fact, he's the mover and the shaker um, within the play. And, uh, you know, the, probably, I think, the most enigmatic of any of the characters, um, as well as, you know, uh, be uh, potentially the most intelligent uh, and the most skillfully cunning of those characters. And then there is the Prince of Marco, or the Moorish um, ambassador in The Merchant of Venice, who has a much smaller part, but nevertheless a visible part. And then uh, the fourth character is Caliban, whose mother is described as coming from Arguin, Arguin being a place in North Africa. His father's parentage isn't mentioned. Caliban is often depicted in a um, artistically creative way, shall we say, um, as a beast-like figure, uh, where his ethnicity is sort of subsumed within the sort of beastly characteristic. But in the story, he's described as having his North African heritage. So I thought, why is it that these four characters exist? And why, in Shakespeare's play, do we see constant references to people of African descent in Romeo and Juliet, you know, the rich Julian Ethiopia, um, uh, in other plays, the references, you know, to black men being like beauteous pearls in ladies' eyes. You know, we have these terms and references. And these terms and references are just terms of art. They are just chromatic definitions of opposite, black and white. These terms are often related to ethnicity, and they're related to the ethnicity that is connected to Africa. So I thought that with all of these fictional characters, that populate Renaissance playing, perhaps that they are reflective of an African presence in England. And I thought that way back in 1983, but I had no evidence to support such a notion. Then in 1986, I came across a book, fantastic book, um, called, I think it, the, the title was The Black Presence in London. It was created by an organization called the GLC, Greater London Council. The organization that doesn't exist anymore. It was a left-leaning uh, organization um, that was heavily trying to promote black history, especially in the suburbs and uh, uh, many of the cities of London. And this book called The Black Presence in London was a fantastic book. It was only about 30 or 40 pages, but it was fantastic because it contained evidence for a pre-18th century African population. Albeit that this evidence was rather Gante, the evidence was nevertheless there. And within this evidence, I saw the first reference to three important documents. Uh, these documents were two letters, one written on the 11th of July, 1596, another, a letter written on the 18th of July, 1596, and a draft proclamation written in 1601. Now, this book called The Black Presence in London mistakenly claims that these documents are written by Elizabeth I. But the important point is that they contain evidence for an African presence. The documents talk about that the uh, Queen Elizabeth is disconcerted to, to note um, that there are so many black and moors, and they use the term Negroes, who are part of the population of England at that time, and many of them have come to England because of the conflict against Spain, and that this African presence um, is fostered and powered, is the term, uh, in England, and that they have, you know, position status, and that they also, rather contradictory, in a rather contradictory way, take the relief that is meant for England's liege subject. So this was the first time I found these three documents. Even So even though the book, didn't really describe the context that these documents fit within. It was the first reference that I had to these documents. This enabled me from 1986 to go on and find the original sources. So in 1987, I did eight, um, it took me two years, uh, but I went and found in the National Archive the original document that was sourced in this book. In addition, um, I, what I then began to do from 1988 is began to think, okay, well, these documents claim uh, that Africans, you know, all over the country 
are a threat, are a danger. And I wanted to find out if they were a significant danger um, uh, or uh, where whether they were, you know, just portrayed as such. You know, how many people of African descent were living in England? Were they just living in port towns like Bristol, um, uh, uh, London? Um, where, you know, where were they? You know, who were they? You know, what was their presence? What was their status? And what were their origins? So I spent from 1988 all the way up till now uh, conducting this research uh, for sometimes for a whole periods of a year, I didn't find anything despite doing research for a whole year. I might go to um, a town or a city and look at their parish record and then um, the next day do the same thing. I'd do that consistently uh, through a whole year uh, in the midst of all the other work that I had to do because this was work that I wasn't being paid for. Uh, so I was doing this, fitting this in with my regular you know, day job. And, and yet I might do all of that research for a whole year and not find anything. No, no sources, no evidence at all. Um, and, and so sometimes that would be at the end of the year, there would be that feeling of despondency. Perhaps these people don't agree. Yeah. Then I began to reassess my perspective on this. Uh, since this was research at that stage that I was doing, that up to that moment, nobody else was really doing in 1988, I know there was no one else doing this kind of research, looking at Africans in Tudor, um, England, uh, Tudor and early Stuart, England. People had looked at the Georgian population in the 18th century and the 19th century, but they hadn't looked um, at the 15th or 16th century. So I was having to make my own structures here and my own framework. Then I had a sort of revelation, um, which is my first revelation. Uh, the first revelation was that I was looking in the wrong place. Um, that, that I was uh, looking in the wrong city, the wrong town, uh, and the wrong place. And I began to reassess the way that I was looking because at that moment, 1988-1989, I had been looking for Africans in metropolitan cities, metropolitan cities that were such and that existed in the 18th and the 19th century. So, for example, I've done quite a lot of research in Liverpool, uh, Manchester, uh, Birmingham, Leeds, thinking that, okay, because these are big cities now, and they are cities where people of African descent now are a significant presence, that these would be the same cities that in the 16th century Africans would be in. Of course, this is a mistaken idea because Birmingham, Manchester, uh, Liverpool, and Leeds were tiny villages in the 16th century in which very few people lived. So I said, okay, let me start again. Let me start again. What were the big towns, cities in Elizabethan England, in Tudor England? It is there that I need to do start my research. So the big towns uh, and cities in Tudor England were places like London, places like Bristol, places like Norwich, um, uh, places like Portsmouth. Um, uh, these sorts of places were the places, the, the, the big town. Um, uh, and when I said um, uh, Salisbury was another um, uh, big town at the time. So when I then reassessed my perspectives, this meant that I now targeted the big towns, the big cities, that existed in Tudor England, this produced phenomenal results. Because when I began to look into the records, the Bristol record, the Salisbury record, um, London record, Portsmouth record, uh, I began to find Africa um, inside the parish record of these big towns and big cities in, in Tudor society. And uh, it, it didn't matter whether they were port towns some of them could be landlocked. Um, and the point was that these were the big towns and the big city of Tudor society, and it is there that I found the population. Now, within places, if we take somewhere, so we take somewhere like um, 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 Plymouth. Plymouth uh, is not a very big town. I'm oh, sorry, 
Plymouth is a big town now, but it's not a big, sorry, it is a big city now, but it's not a big city like Manchester or Birmingham or Liverpool or Leeds. And yet, Plymouth at this time was a major town, a major city in Tudor England. Plymouth was the centre of train. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, Plymouth was the centre of train. So, in Tudor society, Plymouth was the second largest city. Excuse me. Plymouth was the second largest city um, for the African present in England after London. So this was remarkable. This was not a, a, what I was expecting. But it helped to illustrate that indeed this present um, was strong. So the largest conurbation of African present in Tudor England were London, Plymouth, Bristol, places like Exmouth, also um, uh, in, the west, in the west of England, and places like Salisbury, and then there would be other towns and villages um, uh, such as Holt, um, uh, Edinburgh uh, in Scotland, um, uh, and places of that, of that nature. So the, Af the important thing is that the African present in Tudor England is to be found all over the country, yes? It is to be found all over the country, in villages and, town, uh, and, ta and, and towns and cities throughout the country. But the concentration of Africans was not in the same places that the later African presence was to be found in the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century. This was, uh, was truly remarkable. And, um, and uh, I began to record what I found. Um, I began to record. And initially, how I recorded this present was as individual, with individual entries. Parish records were created, uh, most of them from the 1550s onward. Unfortunately, we don't have good records for the first part of the Tudor period, from 1485 to the 1550s. So, the records are, are skewered towards the 1550s onward. And I initially approached the records from a statistical perspective, recording individual entry. And that's what they were initially, you know, to me, just individual entry. Like John A. Blackamore was buried here, 1562. You know, Mary um, A. Blackamore um, uh, died um, of the play, you know, 1601. Um, uh, Daisy, um, a, a, a Blackamore child, was baptized here in 1584. You know, they're, they're a source of record. And they were just the individual entry. Then in about 1992, 1993, I began to relate or move away from this collection of statistical data towards trying to work out how some of these data could be grouped together. Did some of these entries in these parish records relate to individuals, couples, families, community? And that's where my research really took off. Wow. That was quite a journey that you undertook. So I can only imagine how challenging the research process was for you. But as you were going through your research and finding out information, how did, were you able to determine like how Blacks actually arrived in Tudor society? Right, good. So the, the, the key thing was that I had this perspective um, because I've been influenced by post-colonial um, theory, post-colonial um, uh, uh, taxes, post-colonial um, uh, systems of um, thinking of uh, African presence, certainly in the diaspora. And indeed, the post colonial practice does have a lot of positive contribution. But in this case, it wasn't helpful. And this post colonial practice tells a narrative that Africans in the diaspora, primarily, the, the encounter was one of enslavement, um, was primarily one of, of, of servitude or in servitude, primarily one of inscription primarily one in which the African subject was an object um, to be utilized and used by European nations. Uh, and that tends to be 
the philosophy, the narrative that he'd given. And that's the idea that I had. So as far as I was concerned, people that I was researching from 1988 all the way up until 1997, I, I was convinced that these people were slaves, were enslaved people. And that the records were the records of their masters uh, referring to their enslaved people. And, uh, and that idea was the predominant idea. And therefore, that these people had been brought on slave ship, uh, they'd been brought by force, uh, they were kept in England and other parts of Europe by force, uh, they were treated abominably, um, uh, and that they um, effectively lived you know, nasty, brutish and short lives. That was my idea. And I believe using those three documents that I mentioned earlier, you know, the two letters and the proclamation, you know, I was of the opinion that these documents proved that these people were enslaved and proved that these people had an inferior position. And I had the idea that this was where modern racism began. It began in the 16th century, you know, with John Hawkins, you know, and, um, uh, and Francis Drake and Walter Raleigh, you know, with their slave um, trading um, expeditions. And this is where the whole idea of Western European racism and slavery uh, began in the 16th century, and that it continued in an unbroken line from the 16th century all the way up till now. That was my idea. And, and, and I kept trying to fit the individuals, the couples, the families, and the communities that I was discovering throughout the country into that prison, you know, so that even from 1996 to 2007, a further 10, 11 years, I still kept trying to fit these individuals, couples, family, community into this prison. Now, in about 2007, I think it was, uh, a colleague of mine called Imitiz Habit, who had actually started doing his research, I think slightly later than me, um, published his book um, on the African president. Uh, um, he, taking some, he had done some of the similar research, but he, what I didn't know is that he was actually doing some of the similar research that I was doing at the same time, even though he had started slightly later. His book, um, uh, I think the imprint of the, imprint, something called the imprint of the, something, the imprint of black or the invisible black presence or something. In his book, he said unequivocally that the people, the African people in Tudor and early society were enslaved. That's the narrative that he had. And in fact, because he was so strong on his narrative, it made me question my narrative. And I thought, okay, he's telling me so strongly, but the evidence that he's presenting and the evidence that I've found doesn't support that narrative. Let me go back and question that narrative. So I went back. I went back again and again and again and again and researched again and again and again the, the, the records that contained these people. I'm back to Plymouth Records that examined, you know, where, where, you know, these Africans were in the records. You know, what does the record say about them? You know, um, what does it say about their, their, their data? What have they established about their status? I went to the records and put, put off without Allgate, which is a parish in central London near Tower Hamlet. You know, you know where we see Mary Phyllis of Morosco, you know, or Christopher Capovet, you know, both described as Blackamoor. What did it say about their status? I went to the record by Henry Anthony Jetto in Holt, Worcestershire. What did it say about them? and their, you know, their connection to society. I, um, I went back to John of Comey's record in Hertfordshire, and I said, you know, what, you know, what do those records tell us about John of Comey in Hertfordshire? Uh, I went to the African maiden who were the host uh, of the town in Edinburgh uh, and were the object of celebration during the Black Lady Day um, or the celebration of the Black Knight, where King James IV, King James IV of Scotland, dressed up as a wild or black knight and serenaded the two women, uh, one called Anne Blackmore, another called Helen Blackmore, two African women 
um, who had been um, uh, somewhat kidnapped and brought to Scotland um, um, by um, uh, a Scottish privateer um, and lived most of their life in Scotland um, and were treated as part of the royal court. So the prism and the narrative of enslavement didn't fit what the evidence was saying. So the narrative was going ahead of the evidence instead of being led by the evidence. So I said, let, let, let me start again. I said, I think, I, I think Imitid has got the status bit wrong. I think the post-colonial historians who've spoken about this, if they've spoken about them at all, have got it wrong. I think almost everybody that's written about these people has got it wrong. And I said, let me be led by what the evidence logically suggests. So when I did that, and my, my mind opened up and I remember I had a, Euro, a Eureka moment. You know, one of those Eureka moments. And, and I was suddenly freed. I can remember when it happened. I think it was the 1st of September, 2007. <laughs> and on that day, I was looking at these records. I was on the tube. You called it the subway. We called it the tube. And I was on the tube and I was looking at these records. And I was saying, I want these records to speak to me. Instead of putting my narrative on these words, I want them to speak to me. And it occurred to me, and it's such a simple thing, Macy, it occurred to me that these people are not all slaves. And it may seem like a very simple thing for me to say this, but in fact, it's a major thing. And from once I was freed from that rhythm of having to try and construe all of these people into being enslaved people, then I could begin to see them and see that, indeed, 98% of them were not enslaved people. And that these are people who were free. These were, these were of sometimes merchants, soldiers, um, uh, diplomats, dignitaries, etc., etc., living uh, in Tudor society, interacting with Tudor society. Uh, in, uh, and I began to then see them for who they are. Instead of trying to pay for my prison one. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's like having that darling realization that, okay, I've been looking at this through the wrong lens, so let me look at it in a different way. And as you said, it freed you and opened you up. Um, to see their lives as because there is that idea of okay, you would think, yes, they are slaves. What else could they possibly be? But as you Absolutely. showed, there were a there were a lot of other things, as you say, diplomats, submerged. Their lives were not tied to this idea of slavery, which is just kind of what you think of of people of African descent. Yeah. So, can you tell me a little bit about their lives? What were you able to uncover? Um, how did they live? Where did they live? Yeah. So can I just preface it a little more? Sorry, Katrina, I hope you don't mind. Sure. Um, I just need to preface it a little more, just so a little more content. Um, once I had freed myself up, I then became amenable to other narratives, which I had always been sort of studying. Um, and, and most of all, one of the strong narratives that had been sort of left out was the connection to the Moorish population of Spain. Now, in the parish record, there are continuous references that make connections between the Africans that are living in England between 1485 to the, to the 1660s, between this population and Spain. 
the three documents that I mentioned before make reference to the fact that the Spanish, um, Anglo-Spanish War has a connection to these African brethren. And sometimes the Africans who are mentioned in the record are also described as either coming from Spain or through Spain. Right. So this made me connect to a field of study that I had been involved in, but I hadn't yet drawn together, which is the Moorish population of the Iberian Peninsula. The Moorish population of the Iberian Peninsula that had been there since the 8th century. The Moorish population that had been led by Gibral al-Tari, that the Rock of Gibraltar is named after. The Moorish population of diverse people that included North Africans, West Africans, and people from Asia Minor that ruled large parts of the Iberian Peninsula from the 8th century all the way up until 1492. A presence that existed as a significant presence within the Iberian Peninsula way up, in fact, until the 1660s. Yeah. So I began to then think, okay, began to understand, okay, that this population, which I had to a certain extent dismissed its connection, was connected to the African presence in England. And it was connected not because I was saying so, but because the people at the time were saying so. They were saying, look, this African that is now in England was originally in Spain. This African uh, that is now living next door to me, um, well, was, you know, from Valencia. Hence their name, Simon Valencia, right? Or, or this African uh, uh, that was living with now my neighbor um, had previously been in the court in Madrid, etc., etc. And so the, these English records were fantastically opening up. A narrative not only about Africans in England, but also Africans in Spain, and helping to dispel the notion that people, some people may have, that the Moorish population of Spain were not Africans, because there is a sort of idea that they were not Africans, or that they did not contain a significant presence of dark skinned Africans. Um, because there is often another idea that yes, they may have been Africans, but they weren't dark skinned Africans. Clearly, the English records are telling us that that's not the case. Um, that these people who were coming from Spain and Portugal were now living in England, who were part of the Moorish population in Spain and Portugal, and were being described as dark-skinned African, did have their root in this Moorish population that was in Spain and Portugal. And this helped us to not only understand the Africans that were living in England, but also the Africans that were living in the Moorish population and the Africans that were part of the Moorish population that were the progenitors of culture, civilization, the Renaissance, etc., etc. This helped me understand that those Africans that were arriving in England weren't just people that were fresh off the boat, people who didn't understand the mores of European society. Some of them would be extraordinarily astute about European society because in some ways they were European as well and that they had European sensibility, as well as having, you know, obviously a visible African presence. And this helped me see that these people could then be very useful to English society, because they were carrying values, languages, cultures, mores, um, fashions, etc., etc. And then once I began to understand that, I began then to see why um, certain sections of English society would embrace this population, um, would want this, want these people here, uh, would employ these people, um, would want them to play a part in society because they had skills that were useful, skills that were needed, um, abilities that were advanced of their white counterpart. So, for example, a good indication of this is someone like John Blant. John Blant appeared twice on the Westminster tournament role. As far as we can tell, from research and as far as my research needs, uh, it seems that he um, uh, came from the Iberian Peninsula. He may have arrived, um, it's highly likely, with Catherine of Aragon when Catherine of Aragon arrived from the Iberian Peninsula in 1502. Catherine of Aragon arrived, of course, to marry King Henry VIII. And, um, and John Blatt probably came with her. Um, he appears twice on the Westminster Tournament, or Westminster Tournament, or was created to celebrate the birth of um, Henry VIII's son, King Arthur. He did live very long. Um, 
and uh, he appears in a very prominent position. He later um, asked for a raise um, uh, in payment, and he got it, um, and for a promotion, which he also got. Why would he get that promotion? Why would he get that raise? Because he was useful. Uh, why was he one of the king's chapters? Um, because he represented something about fashion, more in culture, um, that was common and popular in Europe. This is not mere conjecture. African musicians were in demand across Western Europe during the 15th and the early 16th century. Henry VIII, in employing um, um, uh, Henry VII and Henry VIII in employing John Blay, uh, would be doing so because they wanted to fit European mores. Those European mores being led strongly by what was happening in Spain, by what was happening in the, by the Habsburg, and by what was happening in Portugal and the Netherlands, um, which was actually part of the Habsburg Empire. And within all of those places, Africans had prominent roles as part of the um, uh, the, uh, the musician entertainers um, of a polite society. And so John Bland was therefore important because he represented those European mores within English society. And that's why he had a prominent role. So he, his, his blackness, his Africanness, wouldn't be hidden, um, wouldn't be concealed, and in fact would be emphasized precisely because it fitted within European mores. This illustrates the massive jump in trajectory that I had to make over a 30-year period in order to understand what this one person's role was in Tudor society. And this kind of process I had to undergo with each of the entry that I focused on in this way. I can't. That's so... That was a long process that you had to undergo, but it was what needed to be done for you to get to the conclusions that you eventually found. It was important for you to go through that process to find everything and as much information as you could about John uh, and his life and his experiences during that time. Would you say, would you say as you were researching and it took like this over a 30 year period, you know, yeah. were, was there things that you were shocked by or things that didn't surprise you? Yeah, I was shocked by quite a lot at the beginning. Um, but then <laughs> later on, not not so shocked. So, for example, if we take Henry Anthony Jetto. So, um, Henry Anthony Jetto appears in the records of a place called Hope. Hope is a small village in Worcestershire. Uh, a small landlocked village in Worcestershire. It's nowhere near the coast. Um, uh, and uh, it, 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 um, Holt is a, was a small village then, and it's still a small village now. Henry Anthony Jetta was baptized there in 1596-1997. When he first was baptized, he is described as belonging to Henry Bromley, which might suggest that he's in, in servitude or in some kind of lowly status. Later, he is described as the gardener of Henry Bromley, and then he's described as being um, a, a man of, of a profession, um, of having a profession um, of gardening. Not, so, not just, so not just merely being a gardener, but being a professional um, in, in that profession. Um, Henry Anthony Jetto then gets, after being baptized, then marries a woman called Presidia. Uh, he um, and Presidia then have six children. He has another child, a seventh child, called John Cuthbert, out of wedlock. And it's not clear when he had this child, whether he had the child before um, he met Presidia or during the relationship. But he certainly had an illegitimate child. Why do we know that he had an illegitimate child? Because Henry Anthony Jetto wrote his own will. That's right. Uh, and his will was dated 1627. It was a will written by an African, you know, more than you know, almost 400 years ago. Um, by the time that he wrote his own will, he was a man of property, uh, a, a landed um, man, 
uh, who had the status of being a yeoman. A yeoman in 16th century English society was the highest rank of commoner. Yeomen had to have their own property. Um, they had to have their own dwelling. They had to be what we call economically independent. So this is someone who would come from a lonely position of belonging to Henry Bromley to now being a landed yeoman within 16th century English society and someone that was literate, able to write his own will um, and, and dispose of his own property. If he died about a few years after writing his will, but and then Presidia um, uh, wrote a second will which sort of had contribution from her late husband. This will is even more, um, uh, even more revealing because it talks about the full extent of the family's property. It, it lists their children and some of their grandchildren and some of their great-grandchildren. Um, it, it, it lists the extent of their property and it lists the disposal, how the property is supposed to be disposed of. In other words, how it is supposed to be apportioned. It is hugely revealing. These seven people, the seven um, direct descendants of Henry Anthony Detta, went on to have 32 grandchildren. Bear in mind that this is a very small village, Katrina. These 32 um, uh, grandchildren went on to have hundreds of great-great-grandchildren. Their descendants populate the village of Holt. Many of the people that live in Holt today are direct descendants of this family, even though they may not look like me or like you, Katrina, um, uh, and they are visibly white. Their ancestry is from this population. I have met some of the people who are the direct descendants of Henry Anthony Jetto. Now, when I started to do this research, I would never have imagined that I would be meeting people whose ancestors who have direct ancestors, who are ancestors of the Africans from the 16th century. I would never imagine that, that, that such a thing was possible. But there we have it. And I would never imagine that it would be in a rural area like Holton, Worcestershire, that I would find uh, people who were directly said of this African presence from uh, the Tudor time. That was, I would say, a welcome surprise. Uh, but I can imagine that's just like mind-boggling that in this rural area, you have direct descendants, descendants, and you can still find them there today. Wow, that's yeah. like that is that blows your mind. So, what I want to ask you about is, and we talk about John's wife Priscilla, but what about other black women? How visible are they, kind of, in the record per se? So we don't know if Presidia was a woman of African descent. We don't know. Um, okay. We don't know. It's highly likely that she wasn't. Um, the reason why I say that is because if she was, it is likely that she would have been referred to in a similar way to Henry Anthony Jetta. That's not always the case, but it's probable. So it's likely that what we had here was a relationship, a mixed relationship, a mixed relationship in which the men of Af man of African descent had married a white English woman. These sorts of marriages were not illegal in, in Tudor times, and it appeared not frowned upon from most of English society. We do, however, have a comment by a person called George Betts, um, who is not happy <laughs> about African men marrying white English women in 1588. And he tells us so in his, in his text called A True Discourse, where he said that there are many of these um, blackamores uh, who are present in England who are marrying these white English women who are having children that are black like the father and not white like the mother. And he, and he, he had a bit of a diatribe about it. So we know that um, these marriages did take place. And also we do know that African women married white English men uh, in Tudor society because we have records of these marriages too taking place and the children produced from such unions. Um, some of these African women, um, we don't know them they married or we don't know if they got married. We have, for example, Mary Phyllis of Roscoe. Mary Phyllis of Roscoe is a young woman. We first see her in the English record 
at the age of about 20 to 21. She appeared in the records of St. Botolph without Fulgate. This was a parish in London, uh, central London, near where Tower Hamlets or Liverpool Street is today. In the 16th century, St. Botolph without Fulgate was an ethnically diverse parish. It, it, it was one of the, sorry, my mistake, it was the largest parish in London. It was an enormous parish inside, an enormous parish, um, that spanned all the way from central London all the way to the banks of London. Now, in the 16th century, London was mostly the part that is across from the river that is now called the City of London. It wasn't the greater London that we now know. So St. Botolph without Allgate bordered the edge of London all the way to the centre. This was a very large parish. And in this parish, um, it was an extraordinarily ethnically diverse parish in the 16th century. Perhaps one of the most diverse parishes in the whole country. In this parish, the majority of the people were non-English born. The majority of the people that lived in this parish were non-English born. Um, they were French, um, people of French descent, Spanish, Portuguese, um, people from what is now called Italy, and there were Africans from all of those places that I've just mentioned, as well as some Native Americans, and um, by the end of the 16th century, living in that parish, and even some people from, um, uh, from, from what we now call the Arctic, Inuit, people were living in this parish in the 16th century. It was an extraordinarily ethnically diverse parish, um, uh, and it, 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 it had a very strong Jewish population, um, a strong Catholic population, even up in, in during the 16th century. It was also the center for cultures and the arts. It was where the theaters were. The theaters were on the bank side, just looking onto this parish. It was the place where um, the excitement uh, and much of what we call it as we society um, was located there. And Mary Phyllis of Orozco was living in the midst of it, in that parish. So when we first find her in the Botolph Without All Gate record, She's about the age of 20 to 21. In those records, it describes how she had come to England with her father, Phyllis of Orozco. Her mother isn't mentioned. We don't know why her mother isn't mentioned. So she arrived in England 13 years before she's baptized. Probably, I think, fleeing persecution from the Iberian Peninsula and that she had as her heritage, part of, the uh, part of her heritage is that Moorish heritage from the Iberian Peninsula. In the baptism record, it describes how she had been in Tzibotov without Allgate for 13 years and had now decided to become a Christian. It described how her father was a basket maker and shovel maker. It described how she was part of the parish um, and, and had now chosen willingly um, to become a member of that parish, uh, and and that her choice had been entirely independent, um, and that she had come to know Christ through her own choice. So this is a remarkable record. It's a very long record, far more complex than what I'm simplifying in the description. It's a remarkable record of a young woman of African descent who was chosen to become a Christian, who's part of a parish who had been brought. England with her father. Her father has probably died, which is why he's not mentioned in the record. She'd been adopted by the parish and now she had chosen to become a member of the parish. At her baptism, the, it was a course celere, where we see notary, note, um, people of note, local mayor, local aldermen. These people are all present at her baptism. Very unique, very um, uh, um, uh, unusual to see this baptism being celebrated in this way. Why is it being celebrated? Because it's an adult baptism. And as an adult baptism, Mary Phyllis of Orozco's um, uh, choice to become a member of the parish, a member of the church in this way, is considered to be of more potent force than someone who is merely born into the Christian religion. So this, is a, this shows us a number of things. It shows us that that those people of African descent who chose to become part of parishes and chose to become part of their church 
would often be welcomed into their churches precisely because they were having these adult baptisms. It's the exact opposite of what we may have thought, that they would in some ways be segregated from their congregation. Having said that, I am fully aware that some people of African descent were strangers in um, 16th century society and were described as such. A stranger was a colloquial, generic term used to describe people who were not yet of the parish. However, there doesn't appear to be some sort of racial bar that prevented them moving from being strangers to becoming members of the parish. I haven't found that um, Eddie Church saying, no, you cannot become a member of this parish because of your ethnicity. In fact, the opposite. I mean, that's vital because you, you do have this perspective in your mind to say, okay, that Mary would not have been welcome into the church, yet she was. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. We have another example. We have uh, Maria Moriania. Uh, this is an earlier record. Um, during the period of time that we don't have lots of records, well, and this makes our record even more fantastic. Maria Moriani is a 1470 record. 1470. But this is a very early record. Um, and Maria Moriana uh, is in Southampton. And uh, um, uh, and Maria Moriana um, is is a woman of African descent who her employer attempts to treat attempts to treat her in a servile way. So he attempts to treat her in a servile way, as if she were enslaved. Maria Moriana fights against this position with the help of the local community. Um, uh, and um, did I say Port or did I say Southampton? Did I Southampton. say living in Port or did I say... Okay, good. Let me start again. Southampton is the right place. So that I get mixed up in Port or Southampton. Okay, let me start again. So we, we, we have the record for a, another woman, a very interesting woman from an earlier period in time, from 1470. Her name is Maria Moriana. Now, this record is more than 500 years old. Maria, and so Maria Moriana is living in Southampton. Southampton uh, is on the southeast coast uh, of England. It's a port town. And Maria Moriana uh, is employed by a um, person called Filippacini. Filippacini attempts to treat Moriana in a servile way uh, and tries to get her effectively sort of pushed off, bought off, or sold off to somebody as if she were enslaved. But her local community sort of rally round her. And um, even though it's described in the record that she is a simple woman, and simple in inverted commas, we're not sure how simple she was, but she's described as being a simple woman. And she's also described as being an innocent. An innocent implies, number one, that she's not yet married, or, or and number two, that she is perhaps not very intelligent, or, and number three, um, that she might actually have a low um, intelligence. We're not sure exactly. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the word "innocent" means in this category, but it certainly seems as if um, uh, she needed help in order to protect her status. She is described as an innocent about three or four times in, in the record, and her innocence means that Philippusini attempts to treat her in a servile manner. The matter goes to court. And we don't have the Russia decidendo, either the rule of the case, but we do have obituditta, legal reasoning from the court. The court said effectively in that legal reasoning that Filippacini cannot treat her in a manner in which she finds herself to be um, against. In other words, whatever status she has assumed is the status that the court will assume is her status. And I hope she's like tautology. But it, what effectively it's saying is, if she said that she is not enslaved, then she is not enslaved. That's kind of what it's saying. And it, 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 it sort of underlines this notion, this concept, which was present in English common law, that the status that you say you have is the status that you have. Right? Now, this kind of notion is a thread that runs through English common law 
from the 15th into the 16th century, um, and even into the early part of the 17th century, until we get race laws implemented, which strip away that status and put an ethnic inscription on it. So this is before all of that. The courts also say that the question of her ethnicity does not determine her status, an important thing. Her status is determined by her status. <laughs> if you see what I mean, uh, and not by her ethnicity. This is made very important um, because he's actually saying, look, you can't use the law um, to make her into a slave simply because she's an African. That's what they say in a different by term. So uh, this case with this African woman is a fantastic case. You know, this is the case before we get the American case of Elizabeth Key Grinstead. I don't know if you know of the case of Elizabeth Key Grinstead. Elizabeth Key Grinstead was an early um, um, uh, um, North American case um, uh, where a woman of African descent was able successfully to petition that she was not enslaved simply because she was an African. Um, Elizabeth Key Grinstead, of course, is a ancestor of people like Johnny Depp, uh, people like, who were direct um, uh, um, uh, descendant of Elizabeth Key Grinstead, as indeed are many people, uh, many of the people uh, are part of the New England population, even part of the southern population of that old population who now exist in America, who have Elizabeth Key Grinstead as an ancestor. So this case is before that case. It's before the John Congo case, 18th century case, um, uh, where they were looking at the position of state. It's an early case. It, 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 it is perhaps one of the earliest cases that looks at ethnicity and status uh, within a Western construct. And it had this African woman petitioning for her right and the local community supporting her. That is just so mind-boggling to conceptualize that this was happening during this early period. So I have to ask you, what would you want, let's say, readers to take away from Henry Anthony Jetto, Mary Maria Magula, Mary Phyllis, Phyllis of Mariasco? What would you want them to take away from their lives? Or just what would you want them to understand about mm. Blacks in Tudor England during this time? Okay. The first thing is to, um, these people that um, I found, for me, are living. They're living people. And they were squeaking to me, and they have been squeaking to me for a very, very, very long time. And they continue to speak to me. Um, all I had to do was listen. All I had to do was listen. And once I began to listen, I could hear their story. I could see that the... Um, footnotes that they have left behind enabled me to establish a narrative about um, their life. This history is a living history. And uh, it's a history that we need to uncover. African history does not begin with slavery. It does not begin in enslavement. Even in the diaspora in North America and in Europe, it doesn't begin with slavery. We must recognize that enslavement does form a part of our history, but it is not the beginning of our history. We have to understand what happened before the 18th century in Europe and in North America to understand what then happened in the 17th and the 18th century. And what it actually does is to make us happy to an extent or glad to an extent because, wow, we've got all this divert and interesting history of these people that impacted in their societies and communities and helped to shape their part of European society, helped to shape their part of uh, the society of the Northern Hemisphere. This is fantastic. But then we have to ask ourselves another question. What happened? What happened to these people's status 150 years later? What happened to African status 150 years later? How does it come to be that we could have Henry Anthony Jetta? in holding Worcestershire as a yeoman in the 16th century. And yet 200 years later, we find enslaved Africans um, being employed um, uh, and brought over um, and Britain becoming the largest slave trading nation in the world. This should make us very, very concerned about the idea of status. And we should begin to understand that status 
is not a constant trajectory upward. People's position and status can change, and people who are unable to secure their status, unable to secure their position, and have their position removed from them. People that are unable or unwilling to defend their rights and their position and have their rights taken away from them. Africa in the diaspora in the 15th and the 16th century had considerable more movable position, opportunity, influence on European and North American society than the Africans in the 18th century even though they were fewer in number. We have to work out why this is. And we have to be concerned about how status can go up and down. We are not on a trajectory pathway um, to enlightenment. Um, and you can, your rights, your status can go down as well as go up. I agree. That was a very powerful statement that you made a few moments ago. And Thank you for joining me today, Professor Nubria. Readers, I implore you to go out and pick up a copy of England's Other Countrymen, Black Tudor Society. I can assure you that you will not regret reading this book. It is for academics. It is for non-academics as well. It is a thought-provoking, well-researched book that helps us re-examine and reconceptualize Tudor England. It is something that I hope that listeners will go out and learn more about the realities of Tudor England and how that is connected to the African presence during this time. And as Professor Nubia mentioned, to see that for people of African descent, it doesn't begin solely with slavery. There is another story which he was able to uncover. So please, I urge you, go out and pick up a copy of England's Other Countrymen. It is on sale now.